Well, I greet you in the worthy name of Jesus this evening. I do count it a privilege to be with you. Thank you to all of you who have prayed for these meetings and, and sent texts and, and notes to me letting me know that you were praying. And I don't know about you, but I've been blessed already this evening. Thank you, Danny, for that song and, and your wife. That's, I may have more to say about that later, but that's a beautiful song and, and very fitting. And, and uh, yeah, the devotions as well. He read that verse out of the NIV. And the King James, the, the NIV says, I have chosen him. The, the King James says, I know him. And, and that's a real, uh, a real challenge as well. It doesn't say Abraham knew God. It said, God, God said, I know Abraham. And could God say that of me and you? I've anticipated and prepared for these meetings with a sense of excitement and fear. I'm excited because I care deeply about godly homes. I fear for multiple reasons, but the one being, I know that I have not attained. Sometimes I get frustrated. Sometimes I don't react out of love. I don't respond out of love. Sometimes I get impatient. Sometimes I get too involved in temporal, meaningless things and don't take time for those things that are most important. And Brother Jay already mentioned, you know me. In a sense, it would be easier to stand before a group of people that didn't know me. People that I didn't grow up with. People that weren't my peers and my neighbors and my algebra teachers and, and things like that. But I guess I would just say, let's learn together. Let's, let's recognize that, that none of us have attained. I don't think there's any of us here that would say we are the perfect parent or we're the perfect grandparent or anything like that. Let's encourage each other in our weaknesses. And as I, as I share my heart, don't write off the message just because I have not attained. But may God's word inspire us to be godly parents and raise families that follow him. There is a sense in which I say it would be easier to stand before a group of people that didn't know me. There's also a sense that I'm excited to, to, to share this in my community because like you, I have ideals and dreams for my family. And if those ideals aren't shared by my community, then it's going to be very difficult to pass those on to my children. And so, in that aspect, I'm excited to stand in my home community and say, this is what God's word says. This is how we are to raise our families. And if you do it, and if I do it, that's positive peer pressure. Positive peer pressure for me, positive peer pressure for my children. And what a blessing when we can have that. One thing that I did as I began preparing for these messages was I, to make a list of all the reasons why I should have said no to the request to come. I'm going to share those with you, and forgive me for all my um, apologies before I get into the message this evening. But number one, I don't have a proven record to point back to. 
Many of you have raised children. Many of you have seen things that I haven't seen. Again, I have ideals. I don't have a proven record. Number two, and I've already mentioned this, I have not attained to many of the, the ideals that I, I strive for. Uh, number three, and this is a big one, to stand up here and present ideals for godly homes will likely create high and unfair expectations for my own children. I read a, a book one time, actually I think it was a book Brother Jay gave me, and the, the preacher said that when he was raising his family, he almost refused to talk about the home for that very reason. And so I guess I plead with you, allow me to share what God's word tells us about the home without placing my children on a pedestal. And I think you understand that. The fourth reason I wrote down is that there are some of you in this room who have poured your lives into raising your children for God only to see them make decisions that are very painful for you. And so for me to stand up here and speak on the home could be very painful for you. And so please understand, it's not my desire to cast judgment on anyone because of where your children are today. Fifth reason, there are those of you here, I'm sure, who long for children of your own, but God hasn't blessed you with that. And so a, a series on the home could be a painful reminder for you of what's missing in your home. And, and the sixth reason, and this is the last one, but it's also a big one. In the last, I'm going to say 25 years, and I'm sure it goes even beyond that, but there are men that I know of who have shared very passionately on godly families, only to see their children leave the faith. And I don't know all the reasons for this, but I do tremble at the reality. And so continue to pray for these meetings, continue to pray for me. As I stand up here, as I share, as I prepare for the messages tomorrow, and also pray for my family as well. So why did I say yes? Because I'm passionate about godly homes. I have five children, and my greatest desire is not that they would take over the farm or achieve financial success or make a name for themselves, but rather that they would develop into servants for the kingdom of God. That is my greatest desire for my family. We as parents have a tremendous God-ordained responsibility to raise our children for the kingdom of God. Oftentimes we talk about our youth. And, and we talk about how excited we are to see youth that are serving God and, and, and serving the church. And, and I'm excited about godly youth. But I'm just as excited about godly parents and passionate parents. I'm excited when I see dads who are more excited about serving the local church and building the kingdom of God than they are about building big businesses and shooting big bucks. And I'm excited when I see mothers who are more excited about nurturing their children than they, than they are with keeping up with all the recent news and reading all the, the newest blogs and all these things that, that probably not you, but some women do. I'm excited about passionate parents. A question for you to consider 
at the beginning of this Bible conference is what is your goal for your children? Thinking especially of you young families here, and I know there are a number of young families. What are your goals for your children? Is it that they would be successful in the business world or that they would be popular among their peers or excel in athletics? I trust these aren't your goals for your children. If they are, then, then what I have to, sh- to share doesn't apply to you. But the messages that I've prepared are for those of you whose greatest desire is that your children would be instruments that God can use in his kingdom. Your prayer for your children should be that of Hannah. You know the story of Hannah. Hannah wanted a child. She longed for a child. She prayed for a child. And when God gave her a child, she knew where that child was from. She knew who had given her that child. And so she prayed this after Samuel arrived. She said, For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And she prayed that because she knew where that child came from. And the same is true of us. Our children are a gift from God. They're they're a wonderful, tremendous gift from God. And our attitude should be that of, you have given me this child, and now as long as I live, I'm giving him back to you. Whatever you want for this child, he's yours. You gave him to me, he's yours. Now, I don't know, thank you, I don't know who suggested the titles for this conference, but as I prepared these messages, I was, I was just so blessed with the, the titles that were given. And, and I had to think, whoever came up with them understood, understands a thing or two about good foundations. A proper fear of God and a singular focus or a singular, singular love for God both very foundational things in raising our children. And so the title this evening is A Proper Fear of God. And this may not sound to you like a very practical message. It may not sound like a message that you can take home with you and implement tonight. But it is. Okay? It's a foundational message if we are going to raise a godly seed. Recently I heard someone say, that one of the hallmarks of our society is a lack of a fear of God. And as you look around our world and you view what, what's happening both in our communities and even in the church at large, I think we would have to agree with this statement. That one of the hallmarks of our society is a lack of, fear, of the fear of God. God has been reduced down many times to nothing more than the man upstairs. What a shame. And I'm afraid that our society's view of God has influenced the church more than we would care to admit. So dads and moms, we will not cultivate a proper fear of God in our families if we do not have a proper fear of God ourselves. 
And that is one thing that I'm going to emphasize this weekend, is that it begins with you. It starts with you. I can give you all the formulas. I can give you all the do's and don'ts. But if your heart is not right, it's in vain. Some of the last words of David. Before he died, he said this, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And as parents, we are ruling over men. They're little men, oftentimes, but we're ruling over men, and we must rule in the fear of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. I'm going to be looking this weekend a good bit in Deuteronomy 5, 6, and 7. Again, the the titles that were given to me are basically the outline of Deuteronomy 5, 6, and 7. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to Israel. And it's it's just before they're, they're going to cross the Jordan. Joshua is going to take them across, and they're going to enter Canaan, enter the Promised Land. And Moses knows that his, his days are numbered. He, he's going to soon go up on the mountain, and God is going to take his life. He's going to go be with God. And in Deuteronomy, he, he recounts the journey of the children of Israel and what took place and what God did for them. And throughout this, he's, he's challenging Israel to stay faithful to God and to teach their children And remember that it's God that brought you out of Egypt. Serve him and tell your children what he's done for you. And in this chapter, Deuteronomy 5, Moses is recounting the the time when God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. And oftentimes, and I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of God giving Israel the Ten Commandments. Often in my mind, I think of Moses going up in the mountain And God speaks to him, and he gives him these tablets, and and Moses comes down, and they're worshiping this calf, and and he breaks all the commandments at once, and, and, and that's kind of God giving the law. But that's not how it was. God gave the Ten Commandments to all of Israel. All of Israel heard God give this law. And I want to read this account, Deuteronomy 5, starting with verse 3. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers... But with us, this covenant being the law, but with us, who are all of us here alive this day, the Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up into the mount. And then this is what God said, I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have none other gods before me. And then he goes on and gives the rest of the Ten Commandments. But that's the giving of the law. And we get get to the end of of the Ten Commandments, and, and Moses describes the scene that took place when God gave the law. Jump to verse 22. Here's what he said. These words the Lord spake unto all your assembly in the mount out of the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the thick darkness with a great voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them in two tables of stone and delivered them unto me. 
So again, this is the setting. This is what Israel saw when God gave the law. And if you can just kind of get this picture in your mind, imagine being Israel, being in this group of people before Mount Sinai, and and think about what took place. And there's more details recorded in, in Exodus 19, I believe it is. Israel's in front of Mount Sinai. The mountain is smoking. It's shaking. There's thunder. And out of all this, the voice of God. Imagine being there and and experiencing that. How would you respond to something like that? Here's how the people responded. Verse 23. And it came to pass, when ye heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, for the mountain did burn with fire, that ye came near unto me, even all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and ye said, Behold, the Lord our God has showed us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God doth talk with man, and he liveth. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and lived? And then they tell Moses, Go thou near and hear all that the Lord our God shall say, and speak thou unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee, and we will hear it and do it. So the people recognized the, who God was when they stood before that mount. They recognized the awesome power of God. They, in a sense, saw God. They saw the glory of God. They heard God speak. They felt God. And they were terrified. And their response to this experience was, Moses, don't let this happen again. From now on, if God needs to speak to us, you go, let God speak to you, and then you come, be the mediator. You come, speak to us. You tell us what God said, and we'll do it. Okay? But don't let God speak to us this way again. If this happens again, we're going to die. Now, does this sound like a proper fear of God? Now, I want you to pay attention and listen to what God said next. What God said about Israel's fear of him, their response to this experience. Verse 28, And the Lord heard the voice of your words when ye spake unto me. And the Lord said unto me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken unto me. They have well said all that they have spoken Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. That's God's response to Israel's, to Israel's response to God. God said, if they would always view me this way, if they would always have this fear of me like this, it would go well with them. If they would always view me this way, they would do what I tell them to do. They would go where I tell them to do. They would trust me. They would believe in me because they fear me. They understand who I am. They understand the power that I have. And he said, if if this is what they would do, if this is how they would view me, it would go well with them and with their children forever. 
you understand why a proper fear of God is foundational in raising our families? If they would fear me this way, it would go well with them and with their children forever. But isn't it interesting that just a a short time after this account, less than 40 days, I don't know exactly, but less than 40 days, what did Israel do? Anybody know? They built a golden calf and they danced around it saying, these be the gods that brought us out of Egypt. Now I'm not going to elaborate more on that story right now, but I want you, I want you to keep that account in your mind and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, I want to read, starting with verse 18. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched. Now let me just stop there. This is speaking to New Testament believers. This applies to Peak Mennonite Church in 2022. Ye... You, here today, as believers in Christ, as God's children, ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, speaking of Mount Sinai, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded, And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Now all throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer looks back. He looks back to the old covenant and says, here's what they had, but here's what we have in Christ. It's a book of better things. It's showing us the the supremacy of Christ, what we have in Christ. And in this account that we've just read, the writer is looking back to Mount Sinai, the account we read in Deuteronomy. And he describes this account. He describes the mountain that shook and that smoked. He describes the voice that spoke and caused the people to tremble. He describes this scene that took place that was so Incredible that even Moses, this man of God that God spoke with, even Moses said, even I fear and quake. The writer describes this scene. And then he says, well, he begins with, but ye are not come unto that mount. Where, where have we come? Where are we at? Let's read on. Verse 22. He brings it to the present and makes it very practical for us today. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an, innumer- an, innumer- and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now, I'm not going to just dissect this passage much. And, and I don't profess to totally understand everything that, that this is signifying, that the writer says, here's where you're at. But this one thing I know, this one thing that the writer makes very clear, is that what we have received in Christ far exceeds what Israel had before Mount Sinai. We are come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, an innumerable company of angels, the church of the firstborn. And we don't bring the blood of a lamb as Abel did. We come through the blood of Jesus. What we have far exceeds what Israel had as they stood before that mountain. Yes, Israel saw God. They experienced God in a way that we never will this side of eternity. They knew God was awesome. They feared and quaked at this experience of God. And yet what we have in Christ far exceeds what they experienced. We're not wandering in a wilderness. We're the church of God. We're not governed by the law. We're controlled by the Spirit. We don't have a priest to go through to reach God. Jesus is our mediator. We don't offer sacrifices for our sins. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. And so the question for us this evening is, what is our response? How will we respond to what we have, to what we've been given? Israel prostrated themselves before God and said, whatever you say, we will do. And then they turned around and bowed their knees to an image. And had it not been for the intercession of Moses, God would have wiped them off the face of the earth. The story of Israel, of that group, would have ended right there. But Moses intercede, and by the mercy of God, he spared their lives. What about us? How will we respond? Go to verse 25. Hebrews 12, 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more, remember, God about wiped them off. God was very wroth with them. He was angry with them. He said, Moses, stay out of my way. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth, and I'll make a great nation out of you. Much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Do you understand that? <laughs> That's powerful. Verse 26 whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken 
may remain. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. How are we responding to what we have in Christ? This passage shows us very clearly that if we refuse, we shall not escape. May we serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Now I want to just define briefly this fear that I'm talking about this evening. This word fear is used many times in the Bible, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. And there's, there's multiple words, multiple English words that have been translated. I'm sorry, there's multiple Greek and Hebrew words that have been translated into fear. And, and I didn't do an exhaustive study of this. I don't completely, I don't profess to completely understand all that is involved in all of the situations where this word fear is used. But I want to propose to you two definitions that I believe are important in understanding the fear of God. What is this fear? The first definition is this. It's a reverential awe. A reverential awe. It's that reverential awe that bows down your heart and says, God, you are the creator. You are sovereign. You are almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing. It's only through your love that I've been redeemed. Only because of your son that I can have a relationship with you. And it's that reverential awe that gives you the desire to go and worship God and do what he says and, and trust him and, and rely on him Every day. It's what Israel had when they said this Behold, the Lord our God has showed us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God doth talk with man, and he liveth. A reverence for God. The second definition is a terror and dread. A terror and dread. It's what we find in Luke 12 when Jesus said this. This is Luke 12, verse 4. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say, fear him. That's not a reverential awe. That is a terror and a dread. Hebrews 10, 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's this fear of God that recognizes that God has the power to both save your soul and to damn your soul for eternity. It's what Israel had when they said, Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, then shall we die. So which one should we have? Well, I would propose to you this evening that we need both. 
Both of these definitions are important if we're going to have a proper fear of God. Many, many people have nothing more than a, a reverential awe for God. And these are the people that they, they go to church and they lift up their hands and they, they clap and they sway back and forth and they sing holy, holy and hallelujah and, and then they go out and live like the devil. They have a reverence for God, but they don't think that he would actually punish them for the way they live. Then there are others who their relationship with God is nothing more than a terror and a dread. They live in fear of the judgment of God. And oftentimes this view of God will lead to asceticism and, and even legalism and, and all kinds of things that God never intended. So a proper fear of God is both of these things. It is recognizing the terror of the Lord while bowing before him in reverence and awe for who he is. Recently, I have been listening to a series of messages entitled, The Divine Attributes of God. Now, I don't know if that sounds exciting to you or not. Oftentimes when I'm picking a message to listen to, I like to try to find something practical, something that I can apply to my life. And so when I see something like the divine attributes of God, I normally don't go for that. But this series of messages, and it's like, I don't know, 12 or 15 messages, but they have so inspired me and challenged me and humbled me. To know God better. To study God more. And as I've listened to this study of God, it's made the, the, the practical things of life seem almost secondary. And in reality, they are. I don't know what, what comes to your mind when you hear terms like theology and, and theologian. These are kind of big, scary words to me. But a, sip, a simple definition of theology is simply this. It's the study of God. And as I've listened to these messages, I've decided that I want to be a theologian. I want to know God better. I want to study God more. I want to see who he is. And out of that knowledge, I want to live a life that brings honor and glory to his holy character. Paul knew the importance of knowing God. And that's why he prayed for the churches. For the Corinthians, he prayed that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. He prayed for the Ephesians that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. For the Philippians, he prayed that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that ye may approve things that are excellent. For the Colossians, he prayed that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. People, we must know God. And, and as I considered this message on the fear of God, you know, you may listen to this message and say, yeah, he's right. I need to fear God more. I'm, I'm going to go home and tomorrow I'm going to fear God more. No, you're not. Your fear of God 
is not just some little dial you turn up. You can't just decide in your heart, I'm going to fear God more, and tomorrow you will. That's not the way it works. Our fear of God is in direct proportion to our knowledge of God. As we grow in our knowledge of God, the fear of God just comes natural. It's what happened to Israel when they saw God, when they experienced God, when they said, that's who God is. That's when they said, whatever you say, we'll do. They feared God because they saw him. And the beautiful part about it is that you will never arrive at a place of complete understanding of God this side of eternity. And, and I'm not sure about the, the other side of eternity. We, we're going we're gonna to praise him for eternity. And so I assume that we'll continue to, to uncover more things about God and continue to praise God. And I'm not sure. Will eternity be long enough to, to truly know all the aspects of God? I, I'm not sure. But, but we won't this side of eternity. Let's, I, is that right, Claire? Yeah. I'm not very old. You're not either, but... <laughs> it's interesting, as you look through Scripture, there's multiple places where God reveals himself in a new and fresh way to someone. And every time, they respond in some way. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Job repented in dust and ashes. Ezekiel fell on his face. Daniel, it said, had no strength left in him. Paul said, What wilt thou have me to do? And John, John the Revelator, fell at his feet as a dead man. And, I, and I'm sure there's more examples in Scripture. People who, who got a glimpse of God, saw God in a new and fresh way, and their response was, it was not put on. It was just a complete outpouring of themselves to who God truly was. And so again, the question for us is, what is your response to the God that you serve? Now, I want to just shift this message to our families. When I was given this topic, I, I wasn't, I didn't ask a lot of questions. I wasn't given a lot of details. But I assume that the person that gave this topic thought we would talk about how to develop a proper fear of God in our homes. And I could stand up here, and I've already kind of said this, but I could make a, a list of practical do's and don'ts in order to develop a proper fear of God in your home. But, again, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to come back to what I said earlier, that, that parents, it must begin with you. You must have this reverential awe for God. You must study God. You must teach God to your children, who God is. You must have a sense of terror as you consider the judgment and the wrath of God on sin. In Deuteronomy 6, and you, you don't have to turn back to this, but this is at the beginning of, the, of a passage on raising our families. And Moses said this. He said, told Israel, he said, The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. These words which I command thee this day shall be in 
thine heart. And then he goes on and talks about raising their families. But it starts with you. It starts with me. And we can't overemphasize our personal relationship with God. It's our love for God. It's our commitment to God. It's our obedience to God. And that is what passes on that fear of God to our children. And if you do have a proper fear of God, I think we can be assured that your children will notice because it will affect every aspect of your life. It'll change your attitude towards your unlovely neighbor because you have a proper fear of God. It will change the way you talk about your government leaders because you have a proper fear of God. It'll change the atmosphere in your home. It'll change, the atti- change your attitude towards your brothers and sisters at church. It'll, it'll change your attitude towards being at church. You're going to want to be there when the doors are open because you have a proper fear of God. You come to worship because you know God. It's going to change what you think about and talk about as you go about your day. It's going to change your family devotions from being nothing more than a, being nothing more than a formality to a meaningful time of worship because you have a proper fear of God. When you're doing something mundane on your phone, like checking the weather, and something questionable pops up, it's going to change how you respond because you have a proper fear of God. And dear people, if we are attracted to and have a love for the things of this world, then you do not have a proper fear of God. If you can waste your time with Hollywood and foolish YouTube videos, then you do not have a proper fear of God. If pornography and idolatry and pride and covetousness and greed don't seem as sinful as they used to, you've lost your fear of God. If any sin does no longer seem sinful to you, you've lost your fear of God. If you parents do not have a proper fear of God, your children will soon see that Christianity for you is nothing more than a religious game. One of the hallmarks of our society is a lack of a fear of God. May this not be true of us. In closing, Israel had seen God work time and time again. They saw the plagues in Egypt They saw the Red Sea parting. They ate the manna from heaven. But when they stood in front of Mount Sinai and they experienced God in a way that they had never seen before, when they heard his voice and they saw his splendor, their response was a proper fear of God. And they said, whatever God says, we will do. What we have in Christ far exceeds what Israel had at Mount Sinai. May we, today, fall before God in reverence and fear and worship him always. And may our families and our communities and our churches flourish because we have caught a glimpse of the glory of God. Shall we have a song?